0: Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then Boaz said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Also, Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. That the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then, all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel... May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went in to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're finishing up this Great story, Ruth. This morning, and I hope one of the themes you've picked up on in Ruth, as we've studied it for the past few weeks, is that Ruth really is a story about hope. It's a story about hope. That's one of the reasons we've been studying it during the Christmas season. Season during Advent, Advent is about hope as well, and we need to hear stories in our world and in our lives about hope. We need to hear stories about hope because uh, hope is hard. Hope is a hard thing to hold on to. Um, I wonder if hope is hard for you this season of life, this Christmas. I wonder if you're here this morning and if you really can take some moment, uh, moments to be silent in the next few weeks and reflect on your life and where you are spiritually, if you would be able to say that, yeah, hope is a struggle for me. I suspect that the answer for most all of us is, yes, hope can be hard. Why? Why is hope hard? Well, for one... Um, hope requires of us characteristics like patience and fortitude, right, which by definition, well, they're hard. They're hard to maintain. They're hard to inhabit. But another reason that hope is hard is because so often the circumstances of our lives and the reality of the fractured world that we live in mitigate against our having hope. And so we struggle. We struggle to really Invest in and believe in the things that we say we believe here on Sundays. We struggle to have hope. Now, this story, I hope, this morning, will remind all of us that we actually can really believe. And we can really hope that God is who he says he is. That he loves us and he is good. Because God has redeemed us. He's redeemed us in Jesus. We conclude Ruth this morning by looking at her redemption Ruth's redemption and the fulfillment of Ruth's hope. If you've Missed the last couple of weeks, a real quick summary. Ruth has followed through on her mother-in-law Naomi's plan to place herself at the mercy of this Jewish man, a man of righteousness and integrity named Boaz. And so last week she met him in the middle of the night on the threshing floor and she proposed to him in the dead of night. She placed herself fully in the hands of the Lord. We saw that in chapter 3. And Boaz, amazingly, responded favorably to Ruth's proposal, and he expressed his desire to take care of her, to make her a part of his life, to marry her, to change both of their family trees. But Boaz mentioned last week that there's one remaining problem. He tells us in chapter 3, verse 12, he says, there's a redeemer nearer than I. So before Boaz can marry Ruth, he has to see if this closer relative of Elimelech, this other redeemer, wants to purchase Elimelech's estate and marry Ruth. And so there's still tension. There's still drama in the story. Uh, There's drama as we see what happens with this one remaining obstacle to Boaz and Ruth getting together and living together. Happily ever after and having hope that God loves them. So today we're going to look at how that one remaining obstacle resolves itself or really how how God resolves it. We're going to look at redemption at the hope of the gospel seen in Ruth four. So let me break it into three parts for you as we move through this story just briefly in the next few minutes. Providence, purchase and praise. Those are the three sections you could divide Ruth four into providence, purchase, praise. First, let's look at providence. Go back to verse 1 with me. So the morning after Boaz and Ruth met on the threshing floor, Boaz wakes up and he immediately goes to work to resolve this situation that he's been made aware of in the dead of night by Ruth. So Boaz, we read, goes to the city gate and he sits down there in the morning. Now you may know that in ancient times... Gates of cities weren't just uh, entry points into cities or places for protection. Gates also, at times, served as the city courtroom, and they also served as business centers. Places where business was transacted and where business arrangements and deals were finalized. So Boaz knows that. That's why he goes and he sits down there. He's going to have to negotiate a deal in order to provide for and protect Ruth, and I'll explain the details of that to you in just a minute, but for now, I want you to focus on one simple thing. That simple thing is this. In verse 1, we see again the hidden hand of God at work in this story. We see the providence, the providence of God. Look what happens. Boaz, in the morning, sits down at the gate in town, and then the language here is like this, what do you know? Behold the Redeemer the exact guy Boaz needed to meet with whom Boaz had spoken of came by So Boaz gets to the gate and immediately the one man He needs to talk to just happens to approach and the narrator He doesn't even give us his name really in Hebrew You could kind of say this guy's called mr. What's-his-face or mr. What's-his-name mr. What's-his-name walked by? It's the author's way of saying again that the circumstances that needed to occur for Ruth and Boaz to get married just so happen to go down in the nick of time. Now, think back over the story. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, we see providence, the hidden hand of God at work everywhere in these seemingly ordinary life situations. It was on display when Naomi and Ruth just so happened to come back to Bethlehem right at the beginning of the harvest season and right at the end of a famine. It was on display when... Ruth just so happened to go onto the field of Boaz, not having any idea that Boaz is the man that she was about to meet. It just so happened that Boaz happened to interpret Ruth's middle-of-the-night proposal to him in the best possible way and in exactly the way that Ruth had intended. All of those things are rare occurrences, but they just so happened... To fall into place. It's like a jigsaw puzzle getting thrown in the air. And as it lands, they just happen to fall into the exact right spots. And now Boaz just so happens to run into the Redeemer who has first dibs on Elimelech's property so that they can negotiate. This is providence. Providence is it's one of two ways that God works in this world. It's one of two ways that God can work in your life. The first way God can work in your life is through, is through miracles, to be honest, through overt, supernatural happenings and signs. Think about um, Exodus, a burning bush that doesn't burn up, and a voice, the voice of God, speaking through the bush. That probably hasn't happened in the last two weeks or so in any of your lives. And if it has, you should seek medical help immediately. Okay, that's an unusual extraordinary circumstance Uh, the plagues of Exodus not a normal everyday event the Red Sea parting not a normal everyday event. This is miraculous overt clear working of God. That's one way that God works. But a second way God works is through covert natural encounters and conversations and situations that's providence. And here's the thing folks, we all We all I think at times long for God to speak to us in an exodus way We long for God to speak to us in supernatural and miraculous ways Don't we? I mean haven't we been in situations In our lives some of you might be in a situation in your life right now where you're saying God if you would just God just appear to me in a dream And tell me what to do about this relationship or this situation or this idea for my future. And I can honor you and serve you and it's going to be super clear. How about another burning bush, God? That sounds pretty good. I don't think I could possibly misinterpret a burning bush. Side note, you probably would. Uh, Moses did initially. But that's beside the point, another sermon for, for another day. The point is, how often do we want God to speak to us in what we consider to be clear, direct ways? But the truth is, we live in a time... Where God usually leads us and cares for us through providence. And here's the thing with providence. It's always better seen in the rearview mirror than in the windshield. It's always more noticeable in hindsight. So what does that mean? What does that mean for you now? We've seen it all through Ruth. And I just want to mention to you again how important it is for you to have a grasp on God's providence. It It means that you can have hope. To go back to our main point for the morning. It means that you can have hope that God is going to take care of you. That God is going to watch over you. That God really does love you. Even in the ordinary day-to-day of your lives. Even when you get up and go to work. Even when you're making your children's lunch. Even when you're taking care of your grandchild. God is going to take care of you and meet your needs. And show you that he loves you. Even when it's not at the moment clear. you exactly how he's going to do that. The book of Ruth teaches that through these ongoing circumstances and regular events in our lives, God is at work ensuring that for his people, that for you, if you've connected to Jesus by faith, all will be well. All will be well. Even when what God is up to is unclear, even when we feel that everything is just ordinary and regular, we can have hope. That's what Ruth is screaming to us through the story. We can have hope that God loves us. Uh, I read an illustration this week. It's an old illustration from the Puritans uh, about uh, knitting. This might shock you, but I'm not a huge knitter. Not one of my hobbies, not one of my things. Marianne likes to knit from time to time. Ainsley's beginning to enjoy knitting. She's very creative, artistic, nine-year-old girl. Me, eh, I can take it or leave it, but apparently... Uh, Apparently, uh, if someone's knitting on a loom, from what I understand in my deep research, cataloging everything you can know about knitting, um, what I've learned is that from the bottom of a loom, um, knitting looks just like a disorganized and sort of jumbled mess. If you look at it from the bottom of the loom or from the wrong side of the loom, there's tangles and there's threads going off the edges, etc., etc. But from the top of the loom, uh, the piece of knitting makes sense. You can perhaps see what it is becoming. And and that's maybe a way to think about providence. In this life, we live underneath the loom. And God lives above it. Um, and God weaves every thread in our lives together. And God promises that it will be beautiful in its own time. And Ruth is saying that that's a reason we can trust him. That's a reason we can hope in him. Even when you aren't sure how God is at work, this book, along with the rest of the scripture, teach you to hope. There's providence in Ruth. Secondly, there's purchase. Back in the story, we see uh, Boaz approach Mr. What's-His-Name, and he says, verse 1, hey, turn aside, have a seat, let's talk, right? And then he gets 10 elders to, to serve as witnesses. And he begins to negotiate. And so here's what's happening here. In ancient Israel, when a man died, um, and when that man had no heirs, or all his male heirs died with him, as was the case with Naomi's late husband Elimelech and Elimelech's children, one of the provisions of God's law in which that family could be cared for is that their closest living relative could redeem them. Redeem them. That means that the closest living relative could choose to purchase the estate of the dead man, the the property and the family of the dead man. And and honestly, it was kind of like a fire sale. Um, It was a huge discount for the Redeemer to get all of this land. And if the nearest relative, the nearest Redeemer, passed on the chance to redeem the estate... Then it went to the next closest male relative and so on and so on. And so here, Boaz is number two in line. He's number two in line, but he wants to be number one in line. And so Boaz is acting in accord with the law here because he's a man of integrity. He calls these witnesses to listen to him negotiate with Mr. What's-His-Name, who's number one in line. And so look back at the text and look at what a great businessman Boaz is, what a great negotiator he is. He's very shrewd. Verse three, he says this. he tells Mr. What's his name the story. Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, you might have heard about her. She's selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech, who I'm sure you heard tragically passed away a while ago. So I thought I would, I thought I would tell you of it and say, hey, buy this. Right here in the presence of these witnesses, and if you'll buy it, buy it. If you'll redeem it, redeem it. But if not, then let me know because I'm next up, and then I'll have a decision to make. So Boaz lays out the terms there. And, and remember, this is a huge bargain for Mr. What's-His-Name. He's getting this property for, for pennies on the dollar. He gets to add to his real estate portfolio. It's a great deal for him. But we as readers, of course, want him to say, no, I don't want it, right? Because only when he says, no, I don't want it, can Ruth and Boaz be together finally, not just on the threshing floor, and live happily ever after. But what does he say? He says, sure, I'll redeem it. And we all say, no! That's not how this romantic comedy of Ruth was supposed to end. Not much comedy and not much (laughs) romance, to be honest, either. But that's not how we want Ruth to end. We don't want this guy to redeem it. But Boaz has an ace up his sleeve. I love this. (laughs) Boaz says next. By the way, when you buy it, um, you get Naomi. This old, uh, bitter mother-in-law... Who's, she's probably like 45, by the way. Old, she's about to die. Old, bitter, about-to-die mother-in-law who's mad at God in the world. You need to make sure that your guest room is open for Naomi so that she can uh, die by herself. And you're going to have to take care of Naomi. So that's a part of the deal. And then one final thing I forgot to mention. Notice this in the fine print. You also get, icing on the cake, Ruth the Moabite. And the guy says, Who? Mr. What's-his-name's like, I I don't know Ruth. Oh, you don't know Ruth the Moabite? She just came back from Moab, you know, that country that was started by incest when Lot slept with his daughters. And uh, she used to worship that demon god, Molech. That Ruth. She's just come back and she's a part of our family now, a part of our community. She lives in Bethlehem. And so if you buy a Limelech's estate, you've got to marry Ruth. And guess what else? You get to have children with Ruth. And when you die, this property, it's going to go not to the children you already have, but to the children that you have with, well, with Ruth the Moabite. So here's where you sign. And so now Mr. What's-His-Name says, verse 6, well, I can't redeem it for myself. Can't do it, lest I impair my own inheritance. He's, he's thinking here, okay, um, <laughs> I don't see this working out too well for me. Uh, imagine Mr. What's-His-Name going home and saying to his wife, hey, honey, got good news and bad news. Uh, what do you want to hear first? <laughs> the good news is we got some new land. We've added it to our investment portfolio. But the bad news is I've taken on another wife. Oh, you don't know her. She's from Moab and... Um, she's going to be in the bed next to me for the next few months, at minimum. So how you feel about that? So he's thinking through this in his mind, and like most rational people, says, I can't do it. I can't endanger my own inheritance and probably his own life, based on what his wife would do to him when she hears about that. And so Mr. What's-His-Name passes, and Boaz becomes first in line. And then we read, verse 7, 8, 9, 10, Boaz buys, he purchases. Ruth and Naomi and all of Elimelech's inheritance he redeems them he purchases them out of a hopeless life he purchases them out of a a life with nowhere to go and with no future he buys them he buys them into his own family so that all that he has is also theirs can I tell you something. Um, do you realize that if you're here today and you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, if you are connected to Jesus Christ by faith, if you've heard the good news of the gospel that Jesus died for your sin, and if you've believed it, if you've ventured your life wholly upon it, then you have been bought. You've been purchased. You've been redeemed in, in a very similar way to how Boaz bought Ruth and Naomi, God buys us. He redeems us. Just like Boaz, God uses his power and his authority and his wealth to purchase us back for himself so that he can love us and take care of us. That's what that word, redemption, which you see all the time in the Bible, that's what that word means. Jesus is our Redeemer. That's good news. Jesus buys, or really God in Jesus, buys us back. He buys us out of slavery to sin, out of bondage to evil. He he buys us back into the family of God, thereby securing our futures Jesus gives up his own life to purchase us with his blood. That's what Christmas begins. That's what Christmas starts. Christmas is the story of Jesus foregoing his rights and his privileges. It's the story of Jesus foregoing his estate and his inheritance to add us to his family through his own giving up of himself unto death. That's why in the Christmas stories, like in Luke chapter 1, we hear Zechariah, when he hears that Jesus is about to be born, sing a song. And what does Zechariah say? He sings first things that come out of his mouth is that God has visited and redeemed. Redeemed his people. So here's what that means. If you have been redeemed by Jesus, like Ruth was redeemed by Boaz, you are no longer a slave. You're no longer a slave to hopelessness. Or to fear. You're secured. You're secured in Jesus. If you've been redeemed by Christ. You are no longer seen by God the Father. Who will judge both the living and the dead. As guilty. Because Jesus is your righteousness. If you've been redeemed by Christ. You are no longer alone ever. But you have a new family. With God as your Father. And Jesus as your older brother. That's what you've been bought. That's what you've been purchased. Into, which is why the Apostle Paul can tell us in the New Testament, you have been, 1 Corinthians 6, bought with a price. The price is the blood of Jesus. You are not your own. Or, Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us. Christ bought us back from the curse of the law, from our inability to keep it, from how the law damns us and condemns us. Christ bought us back from that by becoming a curse for us. Ruth shows us the gospel. Ruth shows us the gospel, which is that God is involved in our salvation. God has not stood back and just sort of from a distance pulled one lever after another to make sure we're okay. No, God, in redeeming us, steps into our broken and dark situation himself personally. That's what redemption means. God intervened and he paid the cost himself to reclaim us to reclaim us, his lost people. Um, Tim Keller in his book, uh, The Prodigal, Prodigal God, tells um, a story about, uh, a, well, he talks about a movie. Uh, it was a film called Three Seasons. Some of you might have seen that movie. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but I read this this week and I thought it was a great illustration of redemption. Three Seasons is a film about, a, really, it's a series of vignettes of short stories about life in Vietnam just after the Vietnam War concludes. And one of the stories is about two people. The first person is a young man named Hai, who is a bicycle rickshaw driver in Hanoi in the city. And the second person is this young lady named Lon, who is a beautiful, stunning prostitute. And Hai is in love with Lan, but Lan is far out of Hai's price range. And uh, Lan, she lives just in this grinding poverty And she longs to spend her life in one of the elegant hotels that she works in most days, but she never gets to sleep in. And so she dedicates herself to her trade, hoping that she'll make enough money by prostitution that she'll be able to get out of her life and escape. But of course, that never happens. Instead, what happens is that the work brutalizes her and the work enslaves her. Then Hai enters into a bicycle rickshaw race. By the way, it'd be fun to watch one of those. Ever seen one of those on ESPN? Maybe they'll start one one day. He enters into a bicycle race, and he wins. He wins first place and a huge cash prize. And with the money, he brings Lon to this elegant hotel. And he pays for the night. And and he pays her fee. And uh, then, to everyone's shock in the story, he tells her that he just wants to watch her fall asleep. Uh, Instead of using... The power of his wealth to have sex with her, to abuse her, to mistreat her, he spends it to, to purchase a place for her, for one night in the normal world, to, to fulfill her desire to belong. And as the story unfolds over time, this experience that Lon has had with High transforms her, and she leaves her life of prostitution and becomes a changed person. Jesus Christ who has all the power in the world, saw us enslaved. He saw us enslaved by the emptiness and the darkness and the hopelessness of this sin-ravaged existence that we're all trapped in. And so Jesus emptied himself. He paid the ultimate cost. He purchased us into the only place where our hearts can really rest, his dad's house. That's what Ruth shows us. Providence, purchase, last thing, praise. I don't know if you noticed the story as all Old Testament stories often do. It ends with two songs and then a genealogy. That's not how we end stories. That's how the Israelites ended stories. There's a genealogy leading us to King David and there's two songs. One of the songs there in verse 11 and 12 is a blessing, a benediction that the elders and the people sing to Boaz. And then the second song Verses 14 through 16 is one that the women sing to Naomi. Listen to that again. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day, Naomi, without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life. A nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and she joins in the song. And she lays him on her lap and she became Obed's nurse. The last thing I want to show you is what a fitting conclusion this is to the story. What a great story. God blesses Naomi. Old, tired, bitter Naomi. Hopeless Naomi with the Redeemer. He's a restorer. This boy is a restorer of life to her. And really, God is a restorer of life to her. And and Naomi becomes the caretaker for this boy. Think about the transformation that's taken place in Naomi's life. Back in chapter 1, verse 12, she said to Ruth, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear you children, would you therefore wait to marry them until they're grown? No, the hand of the Lord, she said, has gone out against me. God is against me. But now... A few chapters later, she holds a son, Obed, on her lap. She's literally gone, literally gone from being empty-handed on the road back to Bethlehem to having her hands full with God's blessing. Naomi, Naomi's moved, you see. She's moved from bitterness to faith and now to hope. That's what the love of God does for people. That's what God's love can do for you. It can move you from bitterness to faith to hope. And, and Naomi sings praise along with the others at the end. Bitterness to faith to hope. That's the movement of the gospel. That's the movement of Christmas. That's what Jesus brings us. Here's the bottom line for you. Jesus will fill your empty hands. And Jesus will fill your empty lives with hope. That's his promise. And I know that we struggle to believe that. But the Spirit, through Ruth, asks us to listen to the story and to rest in it today. When hope is hard, look to Jesus. Remember his redemption. You have been bought. He has given up everything for you. He's taken away sin's curse and he is with you and for you forever. Last thing. I can't think of a better... There's probably better movies, but I can't think of one, to illustrate uh, the move from bitterness to faith to hope than The Shawshank Redemption. Uh, By the way, when I quote a movie, it doesn't mean you should go and have family movie night uh, with that movie necessarily. Uh, I would not suggest doing that with The Shawshank Redemption. Watch it as adults, and when your kids get old enough, watch it with them. It's a great movie. It's about this man named Red, who's uh, an African-American man imprisoned in Shawshank Prison in the 50s, which is in Maine. And when the film begins, Red is uh, cynical and hopeless. He's been in jail for years now, and he doesn't believe he's ever going to get out. So early in the film, they show Red's parole hearing, which he has once every 10 years. And he just sort of goes through the motions in this parole hearing, and he's sentenced to stay for another 10 years in Shawshank until his parolement hearing comes again. But then another character enters the story, a man named Andy Dufresne, who's played by Tim Robbins. And Andy Dufresne, throughout the story, is portrayed as a man who has hope. Red narrates the film, and when he first meets Andy, he says this. He had a quiet way about him, a walk and a talk that just wasn't normal around here. He strolled like a man in a park without a care or a worry in the world, like he had on an invisible coat that would shield him from this place. Yeah, I think it would be fair to say I liked Andy from the start. And so the two men develop this relationship and he begins to break into the hard cynicism that Red's character has been exposed to. And one of the most powerful scenes in the film is when Andy, sitting on a bleacher in the prison yard, says to Red, remember Red. Hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. Eventually, Red is out on parole. He gets out of prison late in his life, but he's a changed man. And and he believes that there's a future for him that's worth pushing towards. And, And the film ends with Red narrating these wonderful words as he goes into Mexico to meet with his friend Andy. He says, I find I'm so excited that I can barely sit still or hold a thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel. A free man at the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. I hope. Let's pray.